Chris. So um, um, if you all could pray for me and bear with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us today. Um, I pray that you would uh, just bring the, the message of the word forward. I pray that you would put it in front of us and, and um, Lord God, that we would know you more intimately through our time this morning. I pray that you would uh, help me to speak in a way that reflects your heart and your will and in a way that's faithful to the scriptures. In Christ's name, amen. Oh, there it is. Um, my wife and I have been married for 17 years in July, July 18th to be exact, right? She didn't hear It's okay. Nothing? Um, <laughs> 17 years in July, right? Okay. Um, at, at about the eight-month mark, um, we were living in California. I was working in an electronics store, and uh, I, I had a friend there. His name was Dan, and he and I were on lunch break together, and we were talking, and um, he said something to me about my wife that was meant to be a compliment, but it was very crass. Um, and it was true. Um, but it, it, it was true in a way that I didn't want other men to notice. Everybody with me? <laughs> um, I'll explain it later, Michael. Um, and Dan, Dan was my friend. Actually, he's a friend that we, that we talk about frequently, even you know, quite a while later. Like, we really like Dan. I almost punched him. I, I actually had to kind of grip my teeth and stand up and walk away for a minute. I, I almost hit him, right? Um, a couple of years later, we were working at a church in um, Indiana, and there was a fight going on between some members, and there was a, a husband of one of the members, and he and his wife were, were not very pleasant people, um, and he yelled at my wife. I heard about that, and, and in my most controlled way, I approached him, and I looked him in the eye, and I said, you will never have a conversation with my wife again. And he started to say, but she, and I said, no, you will never have a conversation with her again. And he started to ramp back up to argue with me, and I said, you cannot talk to my wife the way you talk to her, and because of that, you will not talk to her again. And and he turned around and he walked off, which I was very happy about. Um, I, I don't have a real bad temper, but I, I love my wife, Right? I love my wife dearly, and, and she is very precious to me. Um, I've talked to several dads in, in my career who had daughters that were connected with young men who were not very nice to them. And, and I, I'll tell you that it's interesting that I have heard almost every one of those dads say, I spent a night pacing the floor and considering going out and murdering him. And I didn't do it. Anybody have a daughter? Anybody get that? <laughs> um, and it's not once that I've heard it. It's more than a few times. And I, I never really understood it until my daughter crawled in my lap. And actually, I think I kind of understood it.
but I, I remember my daughter crawling in my lap. It's probably about six months ago, and I'm going to remember it until the day I die. She crawled into my lap, and she put her arms around me, and she said, Daddy, you protect me from everything. And I thought, I, if I have... <laughs> and I bought a shotgun this year. <laughs> um, one of the things that I, I was told by Michael that's one of the most impressive things Michael has ever said to me is, he said, you know what, Eric, the thing I appreciate about you is when you come to the men's home, you act like you care about the guys. And that means a lot to me. It's the truth, right? We don't actually, actually do care. I actually do care. <laughs> or I'm putting on a really... <laughs> I, and I love you guys. Because I can't come over for lunch today, but I will try this week, okay? All right. Um, the thing... That, that rings true about that is that I watch Michael and Michael cares about the guys, right? And because Michael cares about the guys and people treat the guys well, it means something to him. Does that make sense? I think conversely, and I think I've actually seen this happen a little, if somebody isn't nice to the guys or doesn't act right toward them or isn't just, Michael gets irritated. Isn't it true? Okay. <laughs> so be careful, Michael might punch you. Um, the reason that I'm starting with this is um, I watched a video this morning that uh, someone posted on Facebook where this woman was talking about love and, and she said, you know, it's easy to think about love as rainbows and unicorns and all these pretty nice things. But at the very bottom level of it, like at least for men, I think it's probably that way for women. When we really love something, there's a sense that it's, we have this protection duty. Does that make sense? And we look at something that we love, and if we see it being mistreated or mishandled, there's a degree of anger that comes about, right? There's a degree of, of, um, of, of indignation that is associated with folks looking at things that are, are of real value and real depth that we're passionate about and handling it incorrectly, um, and honestly, there's this weird like sort of conundrum to this is that the people that you love the most somehow can, can easily make you angry. Isn't it true? As much as I love my daughter, <laughs> the shotgun was a dangerous purchase on that account. <laughs> no, I wouldn't shoot her. <laughs> oh, it's because I'm a terrible aim. Ask Ann. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, but it, is sort of, it is sort of strange that the people that you care about, like, like when they miss the mark, they can, they can elicit like an emotional response. And I, why am I starting with this? Because we're looking at um, a passage that's really misunderstood. And actually, it's one of the ones, there are sometimes scripture verses when you read translations of it, and you start looking at what the translations, like compared to the Greek, are. Like there are times that the Bible translators... Um, they, they try very hard to sanitize some harder things. And I don't mean to say that to make you uncomfortable with the scriptures or say, oh, well, it's not accurate. But there is, this is a passage where, like, translators have, in some instances, just been wrong. And they've been wrong because it's a hard concept. And I'm opening with this to make it clear. I love my daughter, and I love my wife, and, and I love, like, all sorts of things. And, and sometimes love requires anger when things aren't right. Does that make sense? Everybody is with me? All right. 
Um, a quick background, we're working our way through the Gospel of John. We started in chapter 11 with the hope and the prayer that we will hit Easter on Easter. Um, however, I've now extended this sermon series by one, so it gets less likely as the days go by. Um, John, up until this point, has um, had a theme that we're going to work on next year, but this is the beginning of the end of the life of Jesus. And like, so the story of Lazarus is actually the story of the beginning of Jesus, like um, being arrested and crucified in John's gospel. So it starts here. Um, this is immediately after Jesus has healed a blind man very publicly and nearly been executed. And so like in the preceding chapter, he took off and went into hiding in another area and he's come back to the place where he was almost killed. And we're, we're going to see that sort of tone the, um, the passage here. Um, there's a funeral going on at this point in the text. Um, Lazarus is dead, and um, in ancient Israel, there was, there was very distinct funeral practices. At this point in time, there was an enormous crowd of people who were mourning with the family. It would be so much so like that you, you sometimes would hire people who would wander around with you and cry really loudly. Like the, This is kind of the ultimate drama queen culture. Like We don't cry publicly. These folks would wail loudly and wear black clothes like for a month or months and they would I mean it was super public they would make themselves dirty like they would put dirt on their faces so you would know they were sad and like I mean it was a very demonstrative emotionally demonstrative culture and so that's going to play in especially in this verse in the previous chapter Martha because Mary and Martha are Lazarus's sisters Martha approaches Jesus and she says, first thing she says, anybody remember? Yep. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then they have a whole conversation about resurrection. And John says, listen, your brother will, will rise again. And she says, yeah, I know in the end of time. And they have a theological discussion that culminates in Jesus making a very profound statement. He says, I am the resurrection and the life meaning all future hope you have, all resurrection, all coming back, the restoration of the creation at the end of time, it is because of me. And you need to take me seriously because it is about a relationship and like salvation through me. And Jesus like draws attention to this, this reality in the previous verse. Um, with Mary... So, when she, referring to Martha, had said this, meaning she's finished up her conversation with Jesus, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in a place where Martha had met him. Now, real quick question. Why isn't Jesus in the village? Yes, because if he shows up, there's the distinct possibility people are going to come out and kill him, right? And so Jesus arrives in town, and he doesn't come into town. He stays outside of town, just on the outskirts. And so he's out there, like, sort of away. And, you know, Martha comes out and meets him in secret. And then Martha goes and gets Mary. And Mary is like, oh, the teacher is here, and he wants to talk to you. And, like, for the fact that he had this great teaching moment with Martha, right, now, if you remember Mary and Martha, we have another spot where we hear about them, where Jesus is eating dinner at their house, and Martha is working, and what does Mary do? 
She sits at his feet and listens to him teach, right? So what do we expect Mary's going to do? She's going to listen, right? If Martha was teachable, surely Mary will come along and respond this way. Um, 31 and 32. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but it was still in the place where Martha had met him. Sorry, repeat. Um, when the Jews who were with her in the house, meaning she was sitting there, and there's a whole lot of folks there because you would have... I mean, sometimes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people show up for funerals and they would stay all week. So Mary's at the house and she's surrounded by people. The place um, in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise and quickly go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So now it would be custom practice. You would weep at home and you would go out to the tomb and you'd stand at the tomb and you'd wail loudly. And I mean, you would kind of go back and forth and you'd have meals that people would provide and everything else like but. But it would be very common practice. You would go with them and you would follow their cue. In fact, in Jewish culture, if you showed up to someone who was mourning, you weren't even supposed to talk until they talked to you. So if they were sitting silently, it was expectation to sit silently. And it was considered to be the like height of impoliteness to speak if they hadn't spoken yet. If you look in the book of Job, Job actually sits for three days and doesn't say a word. And his friends... Don't say anything for three days, which is maybe a little awkward. And then if you read the rest of the book, they won't shut up. Um, it's true. It's, and they should have. Um, all right. Supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing her sister says, right? So I'm going to toss out a guess here, right? They probably had this conversation already. Does it sound like it? Hey, you know what? If Jesus had been here, she wouldn't have died. Which isn't that unusual, I think, when, when folks experience loss. It's really common to back up, and there's this angry phase that goes through. And, like, there are all these phases you go through, and it's not uncommon to look around and find people you know, oh, well, what if this, or what if that, or what if this thing, or what if that? And so I don't think she's coming and accusing him. I, I think she's speaking from a place of pain, right? And even more so, like with Martha, who stood there and talked it out with Jesus about the theology of the end times and everything else, what does Mary do? Mary cries. She falls at his feet and said, if you had been here, he would not have died. And then she weeps. Now, the word used here for weep um, isn't like sitting and teary-eyed. She is wailing. Like the, the word literally is she falls at his feet and says, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And then she wails and groans and, and loudly just, just bawls. And um, immediately in cue, right, because this is how the Jewish culture did it, um, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, meaning so she starts weeping loudly. And what do they do? They weep loudly. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. We're going to hit pause here. This is where this gets really dicey. OK, and this is where this is going to get tricky. Um, he was deeply moved in his spirit the word that's translated that, like, if you go back to the very origins of it, 
in the classical Greek, like like you know, a hundreds hundreds of years before Jesus shows up, in the classical Greek, it's the word used to describe the snort of a warhorse going into battle. In the scriptures, it just means angry, right? And so, like Jesus sees her weeping, and his response is to get mad, right? Isn't that strange? Because we don't like to think about Jesus getting mad. He's kind of got this Pollyanna personality, right? Like, he's always happy. Um, and he's always sort of cheerful. If you watch, like, the, the, the movies about Jesus, he's almost always, like, blonde hair, blue eyes, and smiling, right? Like, you never see, or the pictures, you never see Jesus kind of ticked off in paintings. He's always either looking off in the distance soulfully, or he's smiling, right? But what John gives us here is, he would... Basically, like he sees her weeping and he sees these folks weeping and he becomes angry and he was greatly troubled, right? And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. Now, the word for wept here does not mean wailed loudly. It means that he asked, where, where is he buried? And they told him, and Jesus tears up and tears run down his face, right? So he starts angry, and then he cries. Um, which, by the way, uh, everybody knows the bit of trivia right there, right? That's verse 35. John 11:35 is the shortest scripture verse in the Bible. And so, like, if you need to memorize a Bible verse, Jesus wept. Just saying. Um, go on. Uh, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? Uh, It's basically the same thing Mary and Martha said, right? Now, here's where this gets tricky. And here's where the problem arises. And we're going to kind of dive into what's going on here. Well, let's finish it. Then Jesus deeply moved again. What is deeply moved again? Angry again came to the tomb. It was a cave, and there was a stone laying against it. Um, so they respond. They say, well, couldn't this guy have just healed him? And Jesus becomes angry in response. Um, I, I spent a lot of time digging into this and studying it, and I got two suggestions, okay? Um, and And there's a degree to which, like, we're... It becomes conjecture because you're you're guessing. It doesn't say why Jesus became angry. It just doesn't. Okay, and I I generally am loath to guess. I don't like guessing, but I think if you look at how Jesus deals with the things around him and the sorts of things he says in John's Gospel in particular, I think it's actually a pretty fair read on it. Um, he probably wasn't angry at them for crying. Everybody got that? Because generally when somebody did something wrong and Jesus became angry with them, he, he called them out on it, right? Like Peter approaches Jesus. Jesus says, well, hey, guys, I'm going to be crucified here shortly. And Peter says, no, surely not you. That will never happen. And what does he say? He says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> I, he, he doesn't, you know, handle things gently. He's at dinner with the Pharisees, and they say something he doesn't like. And he's like, you know what? You people are like whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but you're dead and rotten inside. And they're like, hey, don't you know you're insulting us? And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm going to keep doing it. And he tosses out another insult. Like, 
Jesus, when he would become angry, was not slow to correct. And so I don't think it's easy, I don't think it's fair to assume that Jesus is, is um, angry at them for weeping or angry at their sorrow. Um, I'm going to guess first um, that this is a little like, um, it's probably a little like watching your child get into a situation where everything is busted and you get frustrated and mad about it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you look and you say, this should not happen to my child. Anybody ever gotten angry like that? Or this should not happen to this person. Or this should not be the case. Because you look at it and you recognize that there is something that is just inherently not right. Particularly like my daughter who deserves you know, the best. Or my wife who is precious beyond words. Um, we look and the love that we have, like, it prompts an emotional response when something isn't right. Um, I'm going to offer a suggestion. Like, people in this world, um, we were not designed to die. You and I and everybody we've ever known and everybody you've ever known, we were designed to live forever. We were designed to be like Toyotas, not Dodges. Um, we were designed to never break down. I did say that. Um, <laughs> we were designed to never break down. We were designed to never die. It is the reason that when somebody passes, it feels wrong. Because it's not how we were made. We were not designed to suffer. We were not designed to hurt. We were not designed to weep. We were not designed to be hopeless. We were not designed to be helpless. We were designed to enjoy God forever and to be in relationship with God, and to enjoy the creation forever. But the creation around us is broken, and it's broken because of sin, right? Not just the sins of others, not just Adam and Eve. It's our sin too, right? I rebel. And because of that, I am part of a broken system. And it's a system that will degenerate and degenerate and degenerate, and eventually it'll stop working altogether. Um, and so when Jesus looks at this situation, he sees people that he loves, right? Not only this agape, I love the creation, but we take it a step beyond that. And Jesus has an intimate and personal, close friendship with these people. And he looks at them hurting, and his response is, is anger. Because it shouldn't be this way. It just shouldn't. It absolutely should never be the case that we suffer and that we hurt and that we experience loss. And so as I toss that out, like this whole series, we're looking at God's perspective on our suffering and God's perspective on our, on our hurt. And ultimately, God's perspective, like, is one of, I love the creation and it makes me mad that it's this way. It makes me mad that, that it's broken. Um, and that the people that I care about, the people that I love, the people that he would eventually die for, like, that they suffer. Um, that's the first half. And the second half is, um, I think, hinted at by Martha. Right? When Martha approaches Jesus, they have a conversation in which they talk about, don't worry, God will set it right in the end. Don't worry, the creation will be fixed. Don't worry, the resurrection and the life will happen. And Jesus actually can step forward and say, I am the resurrection and the life. Look at me, look to me, and you will see what God is providing for your future. These are folks who are sitting around, and they're not looking at that, right? 
they've, they've kind of just, and I don't think you can blame somebody who's sad and who's mourning. Like, you really can't, right? But there's got to be some frustration when you look and you think, guys, I'm right here, right? Um, the Jewish folks, the, the bystanders, um, actually even go a step further, and they're like, hey, he could heal that blind guy, but he couldn't bring Lazarus, you know, make Lazarus healthy? What a jerk. Um, and the problem is that they're looking at Jesus' miraculous works, and they are not looking at the person of Jesus. And so they have an enormous amount of faith in the power that Jesus displays, but almost no faith in Jesus himself. Does that make sense? Um, it It always makes me nervous when I hear about Preachers who talk about, like, God performing a miracle for you today, right? But they never talk about the fact that, like, Jesus is our hope for eternity. Um, and part of that, what it comes down to is, this is uh, C.S. Lewis. I read this this week. Jeremy recommended this book. Um, you have no idea what book it is? From the cover? Wow. <laughs> You want to go ahead and tell me what passage I'm about to read? Okay. <laughs> um, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an arrogant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Um, What he's talking about is we look at the world around us and we think, if I could just have this, I would be happy. And these Folks, these, these Jewish people, these people who know the living God but don't know him at all are looking and saying, couldn't Jesus have just healed it? Couldn't Jesus have just given you your miracle now? Couldn't you have your best life right now? And Jesus is looking and he's saying, you people don't trust me. And it makes him angry because they desire something, but what they desire isn't the holiday at sea, it's mud pies. They want the simple thing that they can have right now and not the reality that God gives us eternity. Um, As a believer in Jesus, everyone who is sitting in this room who is a believer in Christ will never die. The physical part of you will stop working one day. It's going to happen. But your soul will live forever. And eventually it will be reunited with your physical body and you will stand in God's presence for all of eternity. And you will worship him and you'll praise him and you'll eat meals together and you'll have authority in eternity. Like These are some of the things that the scripture teaches. Like, But it's so big you almost can't even understand it, right? It's so much easier to think, I really just want a vacation with my wife this week. <laughs> That's all I want. Um, but in reality, they're so much bigger. And I think part of what makes... Jesus' anger come forth, right? What makes Jesus' anger like, like burst out of him is he looks at these people and they have him right there and they don't, they don't trust it. They don't want it. They want something less. Um, their hunger isn't for Christ. It's for something else. And I... I I'm not judging these people. I'm not talking down about them because I think it's a natural place to go when you're hurting, isn't it? Every time I've ever mourned someone, every time I've ever been sad, my heart doesn't immediately go to Jesus. 
but He is the resurrection and the life. He is the source. He's the end of everything. He's the beginning of everything for us. Like, He's the fixer. And so every broken thing in front of us, every broken thing around us will be made right. And I think that Jesus gets frustrated and angry in response to that. And one of the things we see in Jesus, right, and this is fantastic, we see it twice in the book of John, right? Jesus becomes angry, and in response to his anger, he does something that makes everything better. In one instance, he's eating with a man who's got a withered hand, and he's talking to the Pharisees, and they're like, um, hey, it's wrong for you to heal that guy. Don't do it, because it's the Sabbath. We don't work on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, is it better to do good, good or better to do evil? And they won't answer him, because they don't want to like answer wrong, and they don't really give a, a, a flip about the guy with a withered hand. They care about their laws. And Jesus becomes angry and immediately heals the man. Right? His anger prompts him to do right. In this instance, what we see is Jesus becomes angry and he says, all right, you know what, just take me to the tomb, guys. And what's he going to do? He's going to make it right. Ultimately, I think this is a strong case for the idea that Jesus' anger is in response to hurt in people that shouldn't feel it. Because if my daughter is hurting, I'm going to fix it, right? If somebody is hurting my wife, I'm going to fix it. If you insult the guys, John, uh, Michael's going to punch you. <laughs> um, because this is the truth of what love prompts. When love becomes angry, love acts to fix, right? Ultimately, what we see Jesus do with his life is he offers himself for us, right? And the ultimate act of love to save us from sin and save us from death and save us from the hurt that we experience. So what do we do with this? First off, when we face brokenness in the world, we need to recognize that God mourns, he hurts, and actually sometimes gets angry over the brokenness of the creation, right? Because we see it in Jesus. And it is the truth. And so, like Hebrews says, that we we don't have a Savior that cannot relate to our situation. We have a Savior who's gone through it with us. We have a Savior who knows what it's like to suffer and knows what it's like to feel despair and knows what it's like to hurt and can like, like a high priest, actually, is what it says, but he's our savior who knows how to, anyway, um, semantics. But we can turn to God and we can offer it to him, and he stands there in a place of understanding. I think another thing we can do with this is, um, as we mature in our faith, we need to come to a place where when we sit in the dark, we turn to God instead of to, to other things. Where when we find ourselves hopeless and we find ourselves helpless, we turn and we say, I'm neither hopeless nor helpless because God will take care of me. Um, Faith like a child is like my little girl sitting in my lap and saying, Daddy, you protect me from everything, right? She says that even though sometimes she gets hurt, right? And when she gets hurt, what does she do? She comes running to me. Actually, to me. I don't know what that's about. Um, She doesn't know any better. Um. But we need to become folks, like, in faith, when we hurt, we turn and say, Father God, like Abba Father, Daddy God, you are here for me. You take care of me. I trust you. You protect me. Even when I hurt, you protect me. 
when we face difficulty, it's an opportunity to stop and look at the world from God's perspective. And ultimately, as Jesus is standing here having this conversation, Jesus is a man who could look at the beginning and the end and read the entire book from cover to cover instantly. He knows how it's going to end, right? He knows where he's going. These folks are sitting there. They're like, oh, Lazarus died. That's really sad. You know, we're mourning that and everything else. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to fix it. (laughs) The resurrection is now. God's kingdom is coming. And like that perspective gives Jesus a different position to like judge the situation by. As believers, we need to back up and we need to not just give lip service to heaven. We need to recognize that it is the honest to God foundational truth that we live on. We are forgiven by the blood of Christ. I'm going to offer a third one. I think Jesus gives us a guideline as people for dealing with folks that we love. Right? Jesus looks at the brokenness. In one situation with Martha, he talks about it. By the way, do you notice that? With one, he reasons it out. With the other, he, he gets upset. Right? Guess what? God doesn't deal with us all the same way because not all of us need the same medicine. Everybody got that? Um, so if you look at the other guy and you get frustrated, nope. God does what he does with us because what's best for us is what he does with us. Because he cares. I don't treat Abby like I treat Titus. And I'm sure she'll complain about it one day. She complains about everything else. Um, Sorry. (laughs) But when we love something, we need to act accordingly. Right? And Jesus gives us a great model here. Right? He becomes angry and he fixes it. He sees injustice. He loves through the injustice and he makes it right. Um, So my challenge to you this week, as you go on out of here... Um, as you go into the world, is to recognize that God has a different perspective on this whole thing. When we hurt, when we hurt each other, when all of this brokenness happened, it was never meant to be. And in Christ, he makes it right. And in Christ, he can continue to make it right. And our job is to trust in that and to forgive and to handle with grace and love fiercely and passionately and selflessly and to point to Jesus in all of it. Um, my challenge for you is to, to keep this as a banner, um, to keep it in front of you. Look for Christ when you struggle. Look for Christ when you don't understand. Trust that Christ is with you like a child sitting in dad's lap saying, you protect me from everything. And run to him when you're hurt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning. I pray that you would help us to go out from here and in our struggles and our frustrations, help us to take a God's eye view on the thing. Help us to be angry when it's appropriate, but not at people, but at injustice and in brokenness in the world, Lord. Help us to trust that you are the resurrection and the life who will set all things right, that your blood is sufficient for our salvation, and help us to hunger after bigger things than just the here and now and the instant comfort and everything else. Help us to hunger after your eternity and your salvation. In Christ's name, amen.